Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Co-directors Julie Ha and Eugene Yee's damning documentary film Free Chol Su Lee begins on June 3, 1973 with a man being gunned down while walking through a busy intersection of San Francisco's Chinatown. The man's killing occurs in the midst of an ongoing gang war that has riled the city of San Francisco. A 20-year-old immigrant, Chol Su Lee, with a history of previous run-ins with the law, is arrested and convicted based on flimsy evidence and the eyewitness accounts of white tourists who couldn't distinguish Asian features. The film again is called Free Chol Su Lee, and we're joined today by the co-directors Julie Ha and Eugene Yi. To both of you, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you so much Thank for so having much. us. As I said to you before we got started, this is a story that I had not heard of before, so thank you for bringing it to my attention. And I'm sure this is a story and a film that's going to resonate with audiences around the world, certainly here in the United States, because it has all of the elements that we have come, unfortunately, to know more and more about in terms of the way our judicial system works, or the way our law enforcement approaches certain communities in our country. So it's going to resonate. So let's start with the basics. How did you hear about the story of Chul Su Lee, and what prompted you to move forward with a documentary film project? Julie Ha? I actually learned about it when I was very young. When I was 18 years old, I, I met a man named K.W. Lee, who's the journalist in the film. He was editing a Korean-American newspaper called the Korea Times English Edition, and I came on board as an intern. And uh, when I learned about K.W., that's when I learned about his history as a journalist. Um, not only did he cover the Jim Crow South, but he came to the West and while working as the chief investigative reporter at the Sacramento Union, he came upon this case of Chol Su Lee. I basically, the first journalist I ever met in my life was one who who I found out would spend, spend six months investigating the case of a young Korean immigrant who was you know, mistaken for a Chinese gangster. He would spend his own time as a journalist digging into this, trying to find the truth, and then discovering that Chol Su Lee was innocent of this crime. And yet he was serving, he was convicted by a jury of serving a life sentence. So that's how I first found out about it. You know, meeting someone like A.W. Lee changed my life. Uh, I became a journalist because of that. It wasn't until I think as I got older over the years, I learned more about the case. That's when I actually found out also about the the Free Chelsea Lee movement and this group of activists that came together. I think when I first learned about the case, uh, it was mostly thinking like a, a heroic journalist came in, did this work, and then this this wrongfully convicted man was acquitted um, and freed from prison. Um, and it was really just learning more about the case over the years where I, I discovered sort of all the complications of not only freeing this man, but also how hard it was for him to re-enter society after um, becoming the symbol of the movement. Eugene, you, where did you come into this? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, I've, I've also known KW for, for a while, not as long as Julie, um, but uh, for about 20 years. And so I'd known about the case as well, but really it, 
you know, Julie and I worked together at a magazine called Coriam Journal. It was a Korean American um, national magazine, and she was uh, my print editor, basically, and I was one of the writers. Uh, we had this collaboration that already existed on the page, but uh, there there came a time, and I think we can talk about sort of where, where the idea for the movie came from, but um, it was through that stretch of time that, well, I sort of became more of, of working with Julie and knowing KW that I kind of became like a deeper part of this community of Korean American storytellers, Asian American storytellers who are really trying to just elevate stories from our community. And, uh, and so, so yeah, that's, I, I guess on some level, it, it kind of grew out of, of, of our work history together in that way. You brought it up. I'll ask a follow-up in that regard. <laughs> and what sort of configuration would the two of you coming together decide, you know, I think we've got something there. You, did you find some, oh, there's a fair amount of archival footage in, in the film. Was that part of the sort of beginning to understand that this might be something that could be turned into a film project? Yeah, sure. So first of all, I have to say that I don't think um, I ever would have made a documentary film um, if not for um, my relationship with Eugene. Uh, I didn't have any aspirations to be a filmmaker, but at the time Eugene was talking to me about um, making a film together, as he mentioned, we had collaborated um, you know, very well um, for a print magazine and we enjoyed working together. And I think we shared a passion for telling complicated story, Asian American stories in particular with nuance and depth. And so he, and he always had a foot actually in journalism, but also in, in the filmmaking space, you know, as a film and video editor. So he was trying to get me to, to work with him um, on a documentary. And I feel like if it had been any other time, I might have said like, no, that's crazy. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I don't have that skill set. I, I didn't train to be a filmmaker. But he, he happened to, you know, broach this idea at a time when um, I couldn't get the Chosuli story out of my head. And that's because I had attended the funeral of Chosuli um, in December of 2014. He had died at the age of 62. When I went to the funeral, it was very modest. There, there weren't that many people there, uh, many of the people present were uh, KW Lee, the journalist, um, as well as um, many of the activists who had come to Chelsea's aid, you know, 40 years earlier. I was really struck by what I was hearing there. Many of them were saying they had regrets that they didn't do enough to save Chelsea Lee. They were saying he did more for them than they did for him. Um, these were people who spent six years of their lives trying to free this stranger from prison. And even some of them tried to help him as he struggled um, in, in his reentry to society. And I was really struck by that depth of compassion and humanity. And, and also then K.W. Lee at one point got up at the funeral and he was clutching this walking stick that Chosu had carved for him. And he was you know, saying, why is this story still underground? Why don't people know about it? this landmark Asian American social justice movement, and it's been forgotten. And so, yeah, I was left with this heaviness from, from that funeral, and it really stayed with me for a long time, so that almost a year later, when Eugene and I were talking, you know, I was like, somebody really needs to make a, a film out of this story. And there was quite an urgency, because the the firsthand sources, you know, were, were, were getting quite old, and, and so... Um, it did feel like there was an urgency to sort of make sure this story didn't stay buried in history. 
and so Eugene and I talked about and, and we were like we knew we knew we had to we had to dig in that this was a story we we absolutely needed to tell. Well, Eugene, I want to compliment both of you, but I, with your background in film and as an editor, the fo- the story unfolds in a, a really beautiful arc to the story, the storytelling of it. And um, with your background as an, an editor, it feels like someone who really understood how to tell this story in addition to being such a compelling story. One of my favorite films, certainly one of my favorite debut films of all time, is margin call. And I just, I know that you worked on that as well. And I just, I just, I, that's a beautiful story and the way it unfolds and it's complicated. There's a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts in that, in that narrative and in this one as well. And again, it just feels like you you really had a good handle on sort of the progression of his story and, and how to tell it. Is that something that you were conscious of when you were putting the film together? I do want to give credit where it's due. I mean, in the case of Margin Call, um, I was assistant. I, I was assisting an editor named Pete Boudreaux, who who's an extremely talented editor, um, of course. Um, and it was a beautiful script in that case too. So it was a really wonderful sort of combination of, of different departments firing on all cylinders. Sure, um, sure. And for our film, of course, our edit team was comprised of uh, Gene Chen and Aldo Velasco, both of whom are, are truly masters of their craft. I think we're really, frankly, um, actually necessary um, to a certain extent, because I think especially as first-time filmmakers, one maybe grows accustomed to wearing a lot of hats. Uh, you sort of have to kind of, it's very mom and pop. It's very, it's very, it's very catch as catch can. I think the edit really, and, and I was able to sort of get the edit to a certain point, but it really opened up once we were able to collaborate with with, with folks and really, really build out that, that brain trust. It really frankly, it's difficult to sort of see the forest for the trees after you've been working on a project for a few years, um, the way that we had been at that point. And, and the way that they brought just, I mean, everything that editing, editing can do, the pacing, the emotion, just the, the, just the small fine things that, that affects whether a cut happens six frames before, six frames after a word, you know? I mean, those kinds of things that they did, it was just, I feel like I learned so much from, from that process and from them. So, um, so yeah, I have to just sort of give um, credit to that. Well, you're storytellers. There are a lot of different elements to telling this story. I don't feel like I've given enough due to uh, telling the actual events. We talked about his arrest for the murder and, and the way that that trial unfolds. But there's so much more about what happened to him, the forces of a judicial system that is loath to revisit things that they've done in the past. This is one of the sort of institutional barriers that is for most people intractable and, and, and overbearing in terms of if there is a sense that justice was, was, was mishandled, it's very, very difficult to get those same people to revisit it and to begin to, to redress what, what has happened. And we see that in the film. I, I just think it's really important to point out this is a system that is not geared to introspection, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, look at even just the height issue alone with Chosuli. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, he was he was he was a short man. The estimates have been five two to five three and a half, and yet the the killer initially the the white witnesses were saying he was like five ten five eleven. That's a huge height difference. That alone should have dismissed Chosuli as a suspect. There was. Uh, a faulty ballistics test that put them, that set them on the wrong direction. And even though 
that evidence was disproved before the first trial, it still, it focused the police and the prosecutor on this one man. And then you're right, then the system, it just plows forward, even if those facts fight against it. And and I remember like, as we were working on this case, I remember talking to this one um, defense attorney and just, just asking her about like, God, can you believe something like this happened? And she said, oh, it still happens. It still happens One once, once those wheels start turning um, to make that admission that uh, the system that they did wrong, um, you don't want to admit that, you know? Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's astounding. And, and, and I think the tragic thing is it, it still happens today. Oh, no doubt. We have no, I mean, there's no doubt about that. And, and it does come down to not just race, but it also comes down to wealth to where you are financially. Do you have the means to be able to put up a good defense and for, and a good defender, a good defense attorney should have been able to address that at the first trial. That's, there are so many different elements that if you're on the wrong side, it's, it's a, almost a fait accompli. And uh, that seems to have what, been what happened with him. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, um, I mean, even, you know, Ronko Yamada, sort of one, one of his friends and early supporters, even mentioned to us in, in our interview with her, just kind of with, with this expression of awe that this is what money can buy. Like once you were, they were able to raise this money to hire these defense attorneys who were at the top of their fields, seeing the difference between that process and his original defense was uh, and just a, a shock, the, the, the difference that's there. I, I guess on some level, the fact that this ended up in a victory shouldn't cloud the fact that, as, as Stuart Hamlin said, um, one of his defense attorneys, one of these defense attorneys who were at the top of his field, as he said in an interview at the time, I mean, it took 10 years, it took a community coming together, raising all this money to get him out. And still, he had to deal with just the demons of institutionalization. He'd been in prison for 10 years. I mean, what does that do to a person's mind? Right. Like, I mean, and, and, and so much of the difficulty that he had derives from that experience that he had. I mean, it's just not something that was part of the lexicon at that point. People didn't talk about reentry the way that that's part of the conversation now. And, um, and that's really part of sort of the tragedy of, the, of his life after release. So often this goes back to trauma, right? I, it, it's hard not to see that in so many of the things that play out in plain sight in front of us is how much trauma impacts an individual, how much trauma affects a community. I mean, I think there is probably, I don't know, I'm projecting a little bit here and saying that within the Korean community in San Francisco at that time, there was more, more likely a reticence to challenge authority and, or, or not. Maybe I'm off on this in terms of the sort of just the, the, the relationship, the dynamic between power and people who don't have power. And I don't know if that would be something you would say about the Korean community in San Francisco at that time. Maybe I'm way off on that. Well, their numbers were very small at that time that he was arrested. And so there wasn't actually this um, groundswell of support that he could turn to. Um, and you're right. He was poor, Korean immigrant. His mom um, was illiterate. She uh, wasn't able to get help. And, and obviously you see in the film that they also had a very tense relationship. Right. Um, you know, when you think about what Ronko Yamada actually told us, it's not in the film, but the reason she tried so hard to help him and she actually approached 10 different attorneys to try to get um, them to help him before there was a movement, you know, when she was a college student, just trying to help 
this man. They all said no, you know, that they, they, they needed her to give them a retainer and she couldn't raise enough money on her own. Um, but she told us like, she just knew like he would be railroaded and he had no network of people like either family, friends, community who would be able to come to his aid to, you know, correct, which was sort of a very obvious injustice, but she knew he didn't have that. That's why she tried so hard on her own. And then this movement, you know, fortunately was able to come together, but he had already served by that time four years in prison. It's so, it's so hard to undo the, the, the damage of, of this type of injustice, you know. It's, it's, and that's what I was speaking to, the, the trauma that seems to have revisited his life over and over and over again. And I don't want to give too much away, but at, as the film unfolds, we see he's a complex man dealing with the things that he's been dealing with, the trauma he's been dealing with. There is, again, and as I said earlier, there's an arc to his own personal development. And we see that in the film, and especially at the end of the film. Some beautiful moments. Eugene, are you, I'm curious about this film just screened at Sundance. It's, it screened recently at the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. What's been the reaction to the film? Uh, the reaction has been, it's been wonderful, but I think... And the reviews have been, I mean, they've been everything that we could have wanted. Um, but I think the thing that really was sort of so important to us um, as a team was to make sure that the people who were involved with the movement and the people who were there just sort of felt that the film accurately represented not just their experience, but just gave a sense of Tolsu's life and, and, and of his humanity in a way that was legible and recognizable to them. And I think those reactions are the ones that, like, I think we as a team have kept closest to our hearts as as sources of great joy and um, and just have really helped been the kind of thing that sort of like lifts us aloft to really um, through this process that has been the rollout of film. And as much as this is about Chol Suli, the spirit of KW, Young Won Lee or KW Lee hovers over this film. His spirit, his determination did not accept the story. He saw immediately there were problems with the story. And you mentioned him, and let's talk about you know not only his the reaction, but also um, about him because he's so important. Yeah, he's uh, you know he's such a as we mentioned earlier, he's such a highly influential figure in in both our lives, and he became a father figure um, to Chulsu Lee. And I think what's what's incredible is when he met Chulsu, he had spent his career like reporting on so many different communities you know, with a particular focus on just really the downtrodden, you know, the, the, uh, the voiceless in our society. He even embedded himself with, you know, the working poor in West Virginia. So this incredible reporting career. And then he comes upon this case in Sacramento of a Korean immigrant man. For the first time, he was able to write about another Korean, actually. He feels like, as he, as he says in, in the movie, like they made sort of a a telepathic even connection where he felt, yeah, like he felt like he met an old friend. KW told us that he felt like meeting Cholsu awakened his latent Korean identity. And it's not in the film, but uh, twice in his life, then uh, KW would, uh, would come to found two newspapers, Korean American newspapers, and he credits Cholsu Lee because it made him want to actually explore 
his Korean American identity, the Korean American community, and feel that kind of connection and realizing how important it was for Korean Americans to tell our own stories and, and how that could sort of help change society. And so, yeah, they, they had such a deep, deep connection. When I think about even my own reasons for, for making this film, it even though it was like I saw that there was a larger singular story that we absolutely needed to tell and it was imp- it would have such incredible impact. You know, we often say it, ha- it has the power to change the way we Asian Americans are perceived by society and then also how we see ourselves. But beyond that, it was just deeply personal. I knew KW was in such deep pain after Chosu died. He never expected to outlive him. In many ways, this film became about also comforting him, reminding him of all the loving moments he shared with Chosu, um, including, you know, in those touching phone calls, um, well, in Chosu's in witness protection, just how much, even though things didn't work out, and even though Chosu felt the burden of a movement, and, and that did weigh on him after he was released, he still had a lot of love for KW um, and these activists who who helped him. In some ways, the film became about honoring KW by making sure this story is known, by making sure people will know about Chelsea Lee. And hopefully it will open people's you know, hearts and minds to a man they may not have known, to a man whose background is completely different from theirs. And yet they, they are touched by it. They're moved by it, possibly inspired by it, you know, to maybe they're going to change their views on how they see people who are incarcerated. And, you know, now they actually can, can, and can see their Korean Americans who are incarcerated. KW is, is, um, is definitely part of the heart of this film. And hopefully people feel that. Eugene, anything you'd like to add to that? Julie always says everything so beautifully. I, I struggle to think of things to add. Um, the one small thing I, I guess I can say is, that came to mind um, is that KW, I think part of what I've always found so so resonant about his work is that despite his deep connection with Chosu and just sort of the way that it awakened this latent identity, identity of his, he was never afraid to, to criticize the Asian American community and to criticize what he thought was an insufficiently communitarian spirit that he saw in the Korean American community. Over the course of his lifetime, he certainly saw this ascendant generation that came to the U.S. post-1965, once the immigration laws changed um, through the Hart-Seller Act, attain at least a certain kind of physical and material comfort that he would often call out and he would often talk about as, as, as coming at the cost of something that was more community-minded, more about connecting with each other in, in a way that it really feels like during the Chelsea Leave movement, the Korean American community and the Asian American community that were able to do. And so that's just something that, you know, there's always just the spirit of the rabble rouser and the muckraker in him in that way. And I think that's just, there's just something that's so kind of like clear eyed about his view of the community that that's something that I certainly hope in kind of the view of the community that we gave in the film is reflected as well. My congratulations to both of you. Free Chul Suli is a spectacularly well done documentary film. The film is currently available on PBS's independent lens. You can go to pbs.org to find out how to watch it. PBS was also a funding partner in the making of the film. 
So check it out at pbs.org and check out Independent Lens. You should be able to see it there and other platforms as well, including MUBI. You can go to the filmschoolradio.com website. All that information will be there. Thank you so much. Thank you both for your time. Thank you for free Chul Su Lee. And we've been joined today by the co-directors of the film, Julie Ha and Eugene Yi. Thank you so very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Thank you.